Hey there. Do you want to help me out with future episodes? Over on PeteBrownSays.com, there's a link called Submit. Every few weeks, there's a new prompt there, and you can submit short stories of your own in response. There's a button right on the page. You click it, and you can record a reply right there using your computer or your phone, and it gets sent right to me. It's all anonymous, and I'd love to hear your stories. Just head to PeteBrownSays.com and click Submit. Hey everybody, today's show is brought to you by Hoopsters, a basketball-themed board game only available at hoopsters.store. I like playing board games because it gives me a chance to connect with my kids or my friends, and for me, the best games are a lot of fun, but they're easy to learn, right? I don't like checking the rules on the inside of the box lid every other move. Great games require some strategy, but also a little bit of luck, and they don't take forever to complete a game. I'm not a fan of those five-hour Monopoly sessions. So I can tell you firsthand that Hoopsters is all of these things. You can play a quick game in 15 minutes or longer one in 30. It brings all of the thrill of basketball together with the strategy of backgammon. And I just can't tell you enough about how much fun it is. Each set is handcrafted here in Central Ohio, so head to hoopsters.store, and if there aren't any sets available, you can drop in your email address and we'll let you know as soon as we have some more. That's hoopsters.store. Now on to the show. Shall we begin? Hi again, everyone. Welcome to Episode 2 of Season 2 of Pete Brown Says. This is one of the longer episodes of this season, and for a while I was thinking about splitting it into two parts, a Part 1 and Part 2. Some of my pre-listeners, the people who give me feedback on the show as it's in development, felt like this subject is better served in one piece. I hope you will as well. It is a little bit longer than usual, but hopefully it cruises right along. Today I'm talking about three things that have gotten a lot of attention in my thoughts lately. My teenagers, my blood pressure, and the massive changes that are happening in the way that we communicate with each other. I know I work in communications, this episode doesn't get super wonkish, but I do share some thoughts as to what these changes in how we communicate mean to the bigger picture. Feel free to shoot me an email or tweet at me on Twitter at Pete Brown Says and let me know what you think about this one. And as always, good times, everyone. Good times. Season 2, The Context Crisis Here's how this story begins. Some high school kids are goofing around. Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? No, probably not. But are they doing something awful? Something that will get them into huge trouble? The kind of thing that bypasses the assistant principals and heads right for the main office? A thing that racks up phone calls to parents and out-of-school suspensions? No, they're not doing that. Not even close. They're goofing around and doing the kind of stuff that a teacher, if he or she saw it, would say, Okay now, knock it off. But no teacher did see it, this time. No teachers were around. Some other kids were around, though. Some shitty kids. And they filmed some of the goofing around with their shitty phones. And then they started forwarding the clip around the school to other shitty kids, who sent it on further and further to shitty and shittier kids. You can imagine where this is going. And the thing about the clip is, without the context of the goofing around, it can look like something that it is not. Still nothing terrible or horrific, but certainly the kind of thing that would concern some parents. You'd want to do a sit-down if yours was one of the kids in the clip. Like mine. I was one of those parents. My kid was in the clip. 
And when I found out about this business, my blood pressure hit a record high of 155 over 90. Not good. Even after writing these first few paragraphs, I shot up into the high 140s. I saw my cardiologist this week, a yearly check-in we do, and he looks over my blood pressure readings on the app on my phone. I've made some big adjustments in the past year around my health. Cut coffee down from four to five cups a day to one to two cups a week. Eliminated alcohol entirely and dairy mostly, and ate a whole lot of whole grains. My cholesterol numbers are fantastic, which means the thing driving my ongoing blood pressure issues is our old friend stress, which is something I've yet to figure out how to manage effectively. So the doc's looking over my blood pressure readings on my phone. Plenty are in the green, and maybe a few times a month I'll dart up into the yellow cautionary zone. But then there's that one red reading, the 155 over 90. His eyes bug out a bit when he sees it, and he asks, What happened there? Teenagers, I said. At this, he nods knowingly. Now, I know your cardiologist is not supposed to be your therapist, but when he finds out that I have two teenagers in the house, along with, at the time of this writing, four dogs, a cat, and a ferret, and that I'm not particularly a fan of animals, and certainly not a fan of their poop, and let me assure you, in case you ever thought about filling your house with four dogs, a cat, and a ferret, picking up poop is something you will have to do every single day of your miserable life. And when I explain all of this to him, he looks back over the numbers and says they're pretty good, all things considered. Which is to say, given their context, the readings are understandable. He suggests that I eat more fish, and the appointment ends before I can tell him I have an allergy to most seafoods. What a fucking mess I can be. But this story isn't about me or my blood pressure or my aversion to seafood. Or, at least, it's only about my blood pressure insofar as I have to keep it low enough to survive the writing of this essay. And, hopefully, the raising of my teenagers. It's about something else. A kind of crisis that I see emerging today. Now, normally, I hesitate to use the word crisis, because we usually reserve it for things like bankruptcy and opioid addiction. But the financial crisis seems to have passed, and opioids have been upgraded to an epidemic. So it does seem like crisis is available. It's been 10 years since I first got onto Facebook and Twitter, 10 years during which, along with all of you, I watched how we communicate change with breakneck speed. Before Facebook, it was pretty common to have a thought like, I wonder what Dave has been up to since high school, sure hope he's doing well. And you could have that thought along with this sense that the odds were very, very good you'd never find out the answer for the rest of your life. And you just left it there, with that little hope expressed. Good luck, Dave. Before Twitter, if you wanted to sound off on an important topic, you drank three beers in quick succession and you pointed at your friends and started sentences with the phrase, You don't know me. And the odds of your friends somehow capturing this moment on film or video were astronomically low. And even if they did manage to film an embarrassing moment or two on videotape, there was no internet to put it up on, no phones to forward it along to. It basically sat on a shelf with their other videotapes, and one day they might accidentally tape over it when they set their VCR to come on automatically and record ALF. Yo, Kate, where do you keep your casserole dishes? Why? The cat won't fit in the toaster. <laughs> Never mind, I'll make a peanut butter sandwich. Where's the blender? Try it without the blender this time. And don't get hair in the peanut butter jar. 
Rules, rules, rules. Nowadays, with our crazy powerful smartphones connected to multiple social networks, people like me often say clever things like, we're a whole new generation of content creators, which is the kind of seemingly cogent analysis that we hope will get us hired as consultants. Content creators is what we used to call writers, by the way. I can't tell if this is a step up or a step down title-wise. There have been plenty of days in my life when content creators seem just a fancy way to dress up the term click chaser, which is all any of us in the communications world are really doing anymore, chasing clicks. It's like being a storm chaser, I guess, but it's inside work and incredibly unfulfilling. Plus, there's very little chance of it being made into a series on Discovery. I can say that we are content creators for only a small portion of the total amount of time we spend online. The rest of that time, we're mostly all surveillers or reporters. Legions of citizen spies with our phones at the ready and one-tap uploads to the cloud. For as much as we dub our current time the information age, it seems equally true to call this the age of surveillance, or perhaps even the era of the meticulously managed self. I suppose what I'm getting at here is that like my kiddo that day, I messed around a lot growing up. I was just fortunate not to have ten phones pointed at me every time I did. Indeed, if you did have a friend who took embarrassing pics or videos of you way back in the day, your only worry nowadays is that he might find them and one day think it'd be hilarious to digitize them and post them on Facebook and tag you so that all of your network can see. Not funny, Dave. And even if this does happen, you can untag yourself in short order, minimize the damage, and be more or less alright. You might even be confirmed for a seat on the Supreme Court. Tobin and squeeze. I'm writing this today because I'm still at a loss of what to say to my kid about this whole business. How I can circle back, as I tell my wife, in the, quote, loving and supportive way, unquote, she has made clear she expects of me to talk through what went down. Because it's not like I can say, don't ever mess around, right? When we have to let our kids make their own mistakes, right? As hard as it is to do, and no matter how many points it raises our blood pressure, some days it feels like the best I can do is to say, you have to remember that there's always some shitty kid around shooting video on his phone, which is kind of a dodge away from saying, don't mess around. It's like saying, be aware that if you mess around, it's possible, and maybe even likely, that it will be caught on camera and forwarded around by a shitty kid. And that's hardly great parenting advice, and even worse, consultant advice. It feels to me like Snapchat was designed to solve this problem with its initial ethos of photos and videos that disappeared after being viewed, a kind of digital space in which you were ostensibly safe to be a bit more flawed and human and unbuttoned. Someone catch you slipping up? No worry, it'll be gone soon enough. 24 hours, to be exact. But that's not soon enough for my kids' generation. No matter how long something lasts on the platform, it speeds through Gen Z networks faster than anything you can imagine. Just because it's going to self-destruct doesn't stop it in the slightest from forwarding its way through their universe, getting screen-capped here and there along the way. And Snapchat itself grew quickly beyond the simple mission of disposable content into a fully-fledged content and sharing network, and they've allowed increased permanence to creep into their product in several significant ways. This is Pete, just a few days before this episode is scheduled to drop. 
I started writing this episode more than a year ago, but I'm doing this sort of unscripted drop-in right now just because of something that happened this past week involving Snapchat that, I don't want to say it illustrates my point so much as it scares the hell out of me. So this past week at my kid's school, a video started getting sent around on Snapchat. And the video showed a young woman who was rumored to be a student and a minor at the school engaged in a sex act with an animal. And it flew around that school. Everybody got it. My sophomore daughter got it. My senior son got it. Everyone was speculating about who it was in that video. So, of course, the authorities got involved. The police, the administration, they all had to get involved and looked into it. And as it turns out, it wasn't a student in the school. Somebody had pulled this video off Pornhub, pulled it into Snapchat, and sent it around. And this rumor just fired up along with it, dragging some poor student's name through the mud as it went. And here's the thing. This didn't happen just at our high school. It happened at all the high schools in the district, and it happened at schools in districts all over central Ohio. It was like this past week. All of our administrators and educators had to stop doing their jobs of educating our children so that they could try and figure out if this girl in the porn video making a sex act on a dog was one of their students. And all of this happening on Snapchat, home of disappearing content, where you're ostensibly safer to be yourself. 187 million people use Snapchat every day. There are 10 billion video views on Snapchat every day. Their motto is, the fastest way to share a moment. Indeed, in a world without context, nothing is ever what it seems to be. And in a way, Nothing is permanent, and everything is permanent. And stories like this just make me feel like I'm floating in this lake of I don't know, trying to find something to grab onto, some little thread of sense that can help me connect it up to a larger narrative of what's happening with the way we communicate. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I am, after hearing about this this week, I am so happy that this thing that happened with my kid was nothing like what happened this week. Okay, so I'm going to end my rant now and do with that story what you will. I'm going to drop us back into the episode where I am pivoting from talking about Snapchat to talking about Instagram. Instagram, to a lesser extent, is also used for this purpose. Today's teens typically have several accounts. One, quote, serious account, by which I think my daughter means an intensely curated photo-first presentation of her life. On this account, she strives to have about 10 to 15 really good photos, and no more or less followed by a whole host of what kids call spam accounts. For my daughter, these typically feature really short videos of her and her friends laughing at jokes that I don't quite get. I asked her recently how she decides to post something on Snapchat versus putting it on a spam account on Instagram. It's kind of different for everybody. When I, I put kind of general things on Snapchat, I don't like spamming my story. Um, but some people would like just put that on snapchat or not um and with your instagram spam account some people have like 300 followers on their spam account but i only keep like close people following that spam so then i can post whatever i want on it and some people post like emotional stuff on their spam but i don't like putting that kind of thing out there so i just put like silly videos i wouldn't typically post because it's just kind of more of a private thing or they're like oh don't put it out to your 200 snap friends just like put it on your spam with those like 50 people so social networks let us provide the world 
with an at-a-glance, largely visual presentation of the person we want to be seen as. As Eliot says in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you will meet. In addition to being content creators, after all, we are each our own PR reps as well, cultivating carefully in most cases, but also unconsciously in others and sometimes carelessly and still others, cultivating our face to meet the faces that we meet on Facebook. Social networks now let us have regular touch points with people we are connected to in some way, or more likely, were connected to in some way for a period of time in our lives. And they let us know what Dave from high school is up to. And look at that. He's doing pretty well. Well done, Dave. On the flip side, social networks can be addictive. We often reflexively pull out our phones for a quick tour while we're in line at the grocery store or waiting for Taekwondo class to let out. Lots of thinkers like to decry the death of boredom in the modern age or bemoan Gen Z's inability to be bored. In fact, there's no shortage of articles around these days talking about the massive benefits of boredom. Of course, if you grew up in the 1970s and 1980s, you were bored a lot, and no one was writing articles about what a great thing that was. As I'm writing today, in a Starbucks near my office, a dude with a pencil-thin mustache is texting on his phone, listening to music on his headphones, and working on his laptop. Two aspiring medical students are looking at MRI images of a brain on a shared laptop. At least I think it's a brain. It could be a kidney. Hashtag not a doctor. An old guy is squinting at what looks to be an old Samsung Galaxy and occasionally frowning and tapping at it vigorously. Just for kicks, I'm imagining that he's busy maintaining a tumbler about reading glasses. I'm on my laptop writing this. I wear headphones when I write, but often I don't listen to anything in them. It just helps me focus and tends to keep interruptions to a minimum. Behind me, an impromptu Salesforce lesson is going on, and over to my left, a guy that looks like a cross between Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and former FBI Director James Comey is tapping away on his laptop. Ostensibly, none of these people are bored. And also, I think, all of them are bored in some way. Bored with their connected, dismal lives, haunted by the adventures they never thought they wouldn't have. But look, Dave from high school got a new puppy, and he named it Odie. Ha ha ha! Noise, Dave. Noise! But boredom is not the crisis I'm talking about. It's related, perhaps, an accelerant of it, to be sure, but not the thing itself. The crisis I believe we're in has been a slow-growing one. So slow-growing that I'm not sure we've really noticed it at all. It's simply a new normal that transitioned in so gradually we don't question it. It is a crisis of context. Context, right? It used to be such an academic word, so rarely heard in our daily lives. I should note here that I've got no doubt that academics are busily cranking out papers about context. That's not my world anymore, though. And so the we I keep referring to when I say things like we never even noticed it is not the Noam Chomsky, Marshall McLuhan set. It's just jackasses like me, happy to ruminate pseudo-intellectually for a few minutes a day at the nearby Starbucks, but in general, just too busy chasing clicks and paying bills to give it much more effort than that. So, context. Context refers to all of the details that are informing any one situation. Or, if you will, all the stuff you'd do well to know if you wanted to get a fuller understanding of a thing. I grew up professionally in a newsroom. 
tapping out stories where I'd string together quotes with summarized, verified information, context, that made things make sense. Ideally, the context was fair, and the story lacked any sense of judgment, and it just said, in an interesting way, here's what happened, and what some people involved have to say about it, and why you might be interested in it. The rest was up to you. With the rise and rise of audiovisual media, the soundbite grew to reign supreme. Short statements designed to stand without context to support them. It feels like we grew more concerned with sharing both sides, that is, sharing counterbalanced talking points, than we are with providing context. This leads to talking heads shouting their talking points at each other from side-by-side frame insets on our screen. There are some people who call this fair and balanced reporting, I'm told. What social media did, in addition to answering what Dave from high school and his new puppy Odie, so cute, are up to, was bring the context crisis to the masses, to liberate it from the media professionals who deal with it every day. Suddenly, we are all writing short one-to-two-sentence, contextless updates about our lives, or our thoughts, or our kids, or our worries, or our lunches. The crisis here is not just that our platforms don't encourage much context, nor that we're disinclined to include it in our updates, or too impatient to read it when it's there. The crisis is that generations of people are being raised without context, and they don't much notice its absence. Or worse, they do notice, and they don't care. Hashtag, sorry not sorry. And the truth is, context is slippery and easy to lose. Here's a quick story. From way back in the early days, when old people like me started getting on Facebook, driving the millennials away. So, 2008. It's 10 years ago, if you can believe that. Now, a friend of mine from college, who, like many others, I haven't seen since college, he had grown up in a small rural town that he always used to joke about when we were in school. I'm going to call it M-Town, because I don't want to upset anyone who lives there. When he would come upon some sort of jury-rigged solution in our dorm or on campus, like duct-taping a towel over your window because you'd broken the shade, he'd say, ah, that's the M-Town way. We called this guy the doctor, or doc, by the way, for reasons I'm not clear on, because he wasn't a doctor in any sense, and this was well before Doctor Who had become a cool thing again. I connected on Facebook with Doc in the early Obama years, and not long after, he posted a status update, as talking points are now known, about how he had fixed his parents' washing machine, using something like a mop and a fan belt. Below his post, people I did not know added gems to this thread like, quote, hilarious, end quote, good thinking, and even, quote, can you come look at my washer? And despite knowing none of these people, I clicked in the comment box, and I wrote, I guess you can take the dock out of M-Town, but not the M-Town out of the dock. But, you know, I didn't say M-Town. I said the actual name of the town. I thought this was pretty funny, and I figured maybe Doc would have a laugh about it, since, you know, we shared the context of this joke in college. But of course, no one else in that thread knew that Doc and I had gone to college together and that he used to joke about M-Town all the time. And I never even stopped to consider that many of these people may, in fact, live in M-Town, since that's where Doc was from and his parents still lived, and that maybe they wouldn't find that joke as hilarious as Doc or myself would. In other words, I, a communications professional, presumed a shared context in a public forum where, of course, there was none, and understandably some of them took offense. One of them went so far as to peep my profile and reply below my comment with a carrot symbol pointing up at me, 
and the sentence, quote, says the guy who went to, all caps, Kansas State, and named his company, all caps, Blue Monkey, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Oh, shit. That's what I said when I realized my mistake, that me, professional communicator, once again, writer of actual news stories at one time, and of talking point memos at another, me, a successful consultant, I failed to recognize the context into which I was dropping what was an easily skippable joke. I sure didn't mean to diss anyone's hometown. I don't like it when my hometown gets dissed. But the mirage of social media sometimes makes you feel like you're talking one-to-one with someone, when in fact, you are not. You are never talking one-to-one with anyone on social media. I'm also unclear on how that all-caps Kansas State and the all-caps Blue Monkey constituted a sick retaliation burn, but I'm going to let that one go. Maybe there's a greater context in the world about K-State grads and oddly colored primates that I'm just not tuned into. I've made other mistakes, to be sure, and you may have similar stories of your own. If you're like me, the content you put on social media may have grown increasingly saccharine and safe and tasteless over the years. Any edge you had to your digital self sanded down by the time you hit your 40s, leaving in its wake mostly school dance photos and the occasional announcement of a dead pet. It's a few weeks later now, after this thing with my kid went down. It seems like it's more or less given way to a host of other teen dramas in our local high school. The soft parade, as the doors might call it, has moved on. My daughter has been rehearsing for the school play until 9 o'clock every night the past few weeks. I pick her up, and she flops into the car with a sigh that could move mountains. She decries how exhausted and overwhelmed she is. And then she pulls out her phone, opens Snapchat, and starts taking pictures of her face and snapping them to people. What are you doing there? I asked her recently. Keeping up your streaks? Snapchat, if you don't know, bet big on streak tracking. It keeps track of how many days in a row you send a snap to a friend and the friend snaps you back. For teens like my daughter, it's almost a bit of a friendship scoreboard, with higher numbers meaning longer relationships. Once, in a fit of meet your kids where they're at, I got a Snapchat account and started streaks with both my kids. The streak with my son lasted four days, and my daughter, nine. It's a surprising amount of work, keeping up a streak. But apparently, in the darkness of nine o'clock on a school night, she's not keeping up streaks. If people snap me pics of their faces, I snap them a pic of my face back, my daughter explained. That's just how it works. A face for a face, I asked. Dad, she said. Like that. Just dad. I think about this for a minute. Perhaps this exchange of face snaps is just a quick way to provide visual status of how you're feeling. I've always struggled to read people's moods based on their faces. But I've come to understand that for most of you normies, this is a pretty easy thing to do, thus making a face snap a pretty valuable source of information. Oh, well, I'm just snapping my friends. That's what's happening there. Like, um, that's what a lot of kids do. It's honestly, it's weird if you think about it, but like you just kind of like send a picture of your face and then they send one back and then you snap a picture of your face and then they send one back. And sometimes you can have conversations that sort of like texting pictures. Um, but 
then it's sometimes you can just send pictures of your face. You can actually tell how people are feeling based on how they snap you. Mm -hmm. Because if someone just sends like a little bit of the corner of their face, like they're probably more angry or irritable. On the drives home at night, my daughter seems to exclusively specialize in a shot where she aims her big beautiful eyes up and off to the right or left of frame, as if she has been caught mid-eye roll. If I had to guess, this shot might mean I'm so overwhelmed, or equally as likely, it might mean my dad's Prius smells like farts, which is something she usually tells me when she first gets in the car. But when I ask her why she usually does this particular shot, she gets frustrated with me, and she says, It's just my face, Dad. So I'm going to take a quick detour here for a second to make a, a kind of a lengthy joke. Quite likely, I'm going way too far out of our way for this joke. But I'm committed to it now, and if you've listened this far, I'm guessing you are too. So if you listen to the show, you know that I came of age in the hair metal part of the 1980s. And... That music still makes me smile these many years later, though oftentimes what I once considered anti-establishment badassery now entertains me for its sheer ridiculousness in the auspicious turns of phrase that were set to heavily distorted guitars, such as, for those about to rock, comma, we salute you. One summer during college, I worked at a pizza place on the Jersey Shore, two blocks from the beach. And over a summer of long restaurant nights and even longer post-shift partying, I came to be involved with a waitress-slash-hairdresser, a lovely and kind of short young woman who told me the first time that I met her that she had seen Bon Jovi in concert 23 times in counting. And while I certainly liked my share of JBJ songs, I said, That's a lot of times. And she looked up at me, and smiled and said, yeah, he rocks your face off. Adding, after a thoughtful pause, all fucking day. That was a fun summer of face rocking, to be sure. And to be entirely fair, she's not the only one to proclaim John Bond's proclivity for face rocking. He tells us himself, in Wanted Dead or Alive, that by his own count, he's seen a million faces, and in fact, has rocked them all. Note there, he says all of them. His face-wracking average, he claims, after a million at-bats, is a cool 1,000. Not a single person among this million people that he has seen has failed to have their faces rocked. It's unbelievable. Now let's presume he was being hyperbolic. Even if he doubly exaggerated the number of faces he's seen and rocked, that still means the guy rocked 500,000 faces at the time of the song's 1989 release. And I'm pretty sure he's seen and rocked at least as many faces since then. So, overall, the math checks out. I mean, the guy, you know, he rocks faces. If you asked him, hey man, what are you all about? He's very likely to reply simply, rocking faces. And you've just got to be cool with that. When I think of Bon Jovi and this face-rocking business, of the waitress-slash-hairdresser from that long, warm summer every time my daughter is snapping faces to her friends because I can't help but wonder what would happen 
if Bon Jovi and the waitress-slash-hairdresser got into a Snapchat streak. How would that go down? Would he snap a pic, and she'd reply with a pic of her rocked face? Every day? Multiple times a day, probably. And if JBJ starts to use the platform to expand his reach of face rocking, if he starts streak after streak after streak with fan after fan after fan, well, then Snapchat might finally deliver hard data to John Bond. Hard data to back up his original claim of having rocked a million faces. I mean, you can't argue with the numbers. Sometimes when my wife yells at me to look alive or get engaged, usually in settling some sort of raging household conflict that I'd been working hard to ignore, I have to admit it's because she has caught me with my mind miles away, thinking of stuff like Bon Jovi's face-rocking stats. And I always feel a little bit ashamed, not because she's caught me, but because I know in my heart that it, it it's destined to happen again and again until I can somehow figure out how to exercise it from my brain. The whole business reminds me of the Catholic confessions I made in my youth when I'd copped to the things the nuns instructed us were sinful and accept my penance, but no, deep in my heart, I was sure to do them again and again and again, almost with some sins as I worried at the time to the point of blindness. In the case of the doc and the M-Town peeps I offended in the 2008 Facebook post, I simply deleted the comment I had written. I posted a quick apology as a reply to the Blue Monkey comment, and I sent Doc a direct message about the whole thing and how I hadn't meant to upset any of his hometown posse. He replied with one sentence, quote, It was fucking hilarious, unquote. I'm not sure how to read that, but like most things on social media, it has slipped away. I haven't interacted with the Doc since. This thing with my kid has come back twice since its inception. Both times, the video was spread around or inserted into a group chat by someone who bore my kiddo ill intent. And the dad rage this inspired in me each time the video was reposted, just when we thought it had finally gone away, well, it was way beyond reasonable friends, and it would take several rounds of marching around the house whisper delivering angry speeches to the dogs before it subsided, and I took a seat and silently tried to lower my blood pressure while my wife managed the crisis in the beautiful way that only she can. My kiddo, in case you wondered, is not interested in my theories of a context crisis. Inexplicably, my thoughts on postmodern communications fail to comfort her when complicated social stuff is going down at school and I'm the only grown-up around to talk to. In fact, my best guess is kiddo feels something like this. I don't freaking care why it's happening, Dad, or how it's impacting society. I just need to feel rotten about it. The truth is, you really only get one chance at empathy. And if you miss it, if you screw it up, like I do often, your subsequent follow-ups are fractured. They feel forced and stilted. Even though you're trying to course correct, sometimes you're just making the recipient feel worse rather than better. And add on top of that feeling anger. Anger that they have because you just never seem to fucking get it. Almost a year has passed since I started writing this piece now. 
It's been at least six months since the video last came up, and as you might have expected, some shitty other stuff happened with other shitty teenagers to film it. By and large, my kiddo has moved on to a different group of friends, and for the most part, those old dramas did not make the move alongside. And I'm struggling to end this piece, if you want to know the truth. I remember being my kid's age. Remember the feeling when tiny bits of information could be twisted and reformed into alternate realities. I remember feeling like I never got my say, so to speak. Never could fully express whatever it was I was trying to communicate. This may be why I turned to writing in the first place, because it was at least an arena over which I had some semblance of control. But in the post-context era, pieces like this one are dinosaurs. They're audacious, even troublesomely indulgent. For a number of years after I left journalism and worked as a technical writer, I would tell my friends that the more boring a subject was, the more you got paid to write about it. And for a while, that rang true for me. But as our attention spans have withered, as more and more of us do most of our reading on our phone screens, that trend seems to have been replaced by another that favors brevity above all else. The more valuable skill now is how accurately I can communicate something in the fewest number of words. We used to say brevity was the soul of wit, but now it's table stakes in a mobile phone world. It's an expectation hanging over our work, like one of the dirty dishwater gray days we have in central Ohio, starting in October and running through April. In our quest to shave words, we risk losing context, and with it, we open ourselves up to the writer's greatest fear, that despite all of our efforts, despite our careful consideration and thoughtful revision, we end up being misunderstood. Some days, the outlook for content creators is truly and adamantly dismal. And others, you skate on by, accepting the new reality for what it is, and wonder what new TV series you might start binge-streaming when you get home from work that night. And whether it's being rocked by 80s hair metal or snapped to a friend to keep a streak alive, you end up each day preparing a face to meet the faces that you meet devoid of context and understanding, fixed safely in place for the next 12 to 14 hours. Sometimes I sleep. Sometimes it's not for days. The people I meet always go their separate ways. Sometimes you tell the day by the bottle that you drink. In times when you're alone, all you do is think. says is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me pete brown and is the property of blue monkey communications this show is written to the best of my memory at times names timelines and events have been changed though i will try to let you know when that is happening you can learn more about the basketball themed board game hoopsters at hoopsters.store you can follow the show on facebook twitter and instagram all at pete brown says and submit a story of your own or sign up for the newsletter at PeteBrownSays.com. There's also a link there to buy me a cup of coffee if you want to help cover production expenses. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. I'm growing an audience, one listener at a time, and your help is crucial to that effort. Music and sound effects in this episode have been sourced and licensed from the websites 
audionautics.com, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. The opening music is by Brian Hake, and some interstitials are by Kevin Davison. Their now-defunct band, Delicious, performs the show's theme song, I'm Not Myself. We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. Until then, and as always, good times, everyone. Good times. <laughs>